these things in his name. Amen. From the moment that Rebecca was perceived to be the bride-elect for Isaac, she began being adorned for her particular calling. The scene is recorded for you in Genesis chapter 24. Abraham's servant at his instruction has traveled to Nahor in Mesopotamia to a well where he has his camels kneel down. And we're told by the Holy Spirit through Moses in Genesis 24, beginning with verse 12, that that servant prays and he says, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out uh, to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, or before the prayer was completed, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, um, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden who, who, whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar from her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. As soon as he finds out who she is and determines that she is indeed the daughter of Nahor, she runs home with the news wearing this ring and now these golden bracelets. And her brother Laban spots it right away. He was a clever boy. Uh, He knew something was up because suddenly his sister comes home adorned, adorned in ways that she wasn't when she went out from the house. She left the house plainly, and now she comes back with jewelry. And that's always a good sign. When you send a woman off and she comes back with jewelry, that's always a good thing. And he knew, because he was such a clever man, that something was up. So he invited the servant into their dwelling. And the servant then recounts the whole story to the family. And he asks if they'll agree to the marriage. And both her father and brother agree. And you see in Genesis 24, verse 50, the thing has come from the Lord, they say. 
we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out more jewelry. Jewelry of silver and of gold and garments, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. So the jewelry is being passed out here among uh, the whole family, but particularly upon Rebekah. And then the account ends with these words. And this is Genesis 24, verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, when you look at this scene, there's a basic principle set, set forth here that we're going to have to address at some other time. But you have in this verse a simple and yet profound description of marriage. I told my daughters from the time when they started to care about such things to watch how any man that they were interested in treated his mother. And I explained to them that that was the key as to how he would treat them. Pay attention to the way he treats his mother. And the way he treats his mother will give you an indication of the way he will treat you. And I believe that's true today as it's ever been. And I would give the same advice to you young girls today and to you boys. To you, I would say, treat your mothers with the highest regard and and respect. And and you'll prove to be a worthy candidate for a Christian girl who's looking for a faithful husband. Now, in the context of what's before you here in Malachi this morning, consider this. Isaac loved Rebekah. Not in the same way, of course, that he loved his mother, but with the same care and the same patience, the same tenderness, the same respect and attention. Those things which he showed towards his mother, he now shows towards her. And that's sort of what that last verse is implying to us, that he brought her in and now he was comforted in the loss of his mother. And he was treating this woman now, his wife, with that same attitude of respect and honor and regard. Now, this is the way wives in Israel were to be regarded. And it's the way they were to be treated. And it's the way wives are to be treated in all the church of Christ. They're to be nourished and they're to be cherished, loved as Christ loves his bride, the church. We just were seeing about that a moment ago. One of the verses that you were seeing about the church and its foundation in Jesus Christ was the nourishing and cherishing that God provides for his church, that Christ provides for his church because of the love he has for the church. And the scripture tells us that that's the same attitude that husbands are to have towards their wives within the church. Now, that's the, the basic standing here as we get started. 
Hopefully, I think as you think about all that, you can see the problem in Israel in the days of Malachi. The women of Israel were covering the altar with their tears. They were crying out to God because of the treatment that they were receiving at the hands of their husbands, who were neglecting and rejecting them. You see it there in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, the second half of the verse. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it uh, with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been uh, faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. One of the things we see here is that the women of Israel betrayed, divorced, and neglected in favor of the pagan women of the Gentiles come weeping at the altar because of the way they're being treated. They're calling on God to to vindicate them, to, to bring justice to them. The poor wives were ready to break their hearts and not daring to make their case known to any other. They complained to God and covered the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying, says Matthew Henry. As a result of that attitude of the women and the way that they're being treated and the weeping and the tears that are coming from them, the whole people become distressed because God is no longer regarding or that is turning to or taking note of their offerings or accepting or receiving those offerings from them with favor or as it were with any delight in them. And the point here is, beloved, that the voice of accusation and guilt sounded louder than the prayers and the pleas of the petitioners. They were finding themselves in trouble and they were saying, why are we suffering like this? And the Lord's answer is, because the sound of these women being disenfranchised by you sounds louder in my ears than the sound of your prayers and pleas for grace and blessing. Your guilt speaks louder than your calls for help. And that's often the case when prayers seem to go unheard or unheeded. There's a louder voice, the voice that's generated by the guilt of sin in some way. In Psalm 66, verse 18, David says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had been cherishing some iniquity and protecting it, then I know that the Lord wouldn't hear me because the voice of that guilt is louder than the voice of my prayers. And that's the case here. The tears of your oppressed wives are as a veil upon my altar and i do also uh, and and do also covered excuse me that your sacrifices and oblations cannot be seen or make me not accept them when their cries and their prayers come both before me 
They do so trouble and corrupt your prayers and so hinder that they are not heard of me at all. And that's Richard Stock paraphrasing what the Lord says here. I'm not hearing your prayers because I'm hearing your guilt. And what we find is there's an utter lack of connection in their hearts regarding these things. They're not making this connection there in their minds and in their hearts between their unfaithfulness in regards to their covenant promises to the Lord and to their wives and their woes and their troubles. Even the growing coldness between them and their God. They're not recognizing that this coldness is developing between them and God because they are not keeping covenant with him and with the wives of their youth. You can break it down this way. They had promised before God to do whatever God commanded. That was part of what they had done officially and formally as a people. That's the first thing. They had promised to do whatever God commanded. Secondly, God had commanded that they take the wives he appointed for them. They're all the women in the world. And the Lord said, for you, my people, these are the only ones you may have. You've said you'll do whatever I command. Okay, here's my command. These women should be your wives. He further commanded what their treatment ought to be. That is how they ought to deal with those wives and how they ought to be honored and how they ought to be respected. You've said, you'll do whatever I command you. Okay, I'm commanding you. These are to be your wives. And now this is the way you're supposed to treat them. This is the way you're supposed to honor them. This is the way you're supposed to regard them. And he also forbade them to take wives who were outside of covenant with him. So you get all the parts now. They say, first of all, we'll do whatever you command us to do. And the Lord says, okay, here's what I command. You only take wives from those who covenant with me. You treat them in a way that honors me and blesses them. And thirdly, you do not take wives from those who are not in covenant with me. So three very clear commands from the Lord. Then they promised and covenanted before him to those wives that he commanded them to take that they would love and serve them as he commanded and love no other that way. That's what they did when they made that commitment to these wives that he had appointed. They said, all right, now we'll stand before the Lord in this marriage ceremony, and we, we will say that all these things that the Lord has commanded, we will do in regards to those that you have appointed for us. And I'm sure that I hardly need to point out to you that absolutely nothing has changed here. You and every believer who has made a commitment to Christ has promised with that commitment to do all that is commanded. Recognizing that we're weak and that we're sinners and that we need the forgiveness of sins, but as much as we can, We are committed to doing what God has commanded. And God has commanded the same thing to every Christian man. 
you can take any wife who is committed to me, who is in covenant with me. And when you do, this is the way you are to treat her. You're to love her as Christ loves the church. And you may not take a spouse from those who are not in covenant with me. Nothing's changed, has it? It's the same as it was then. And then, when we stand in marriage, what do we promise to do? We promise before God that we will do what he's commanded. We'll take this woman that God has chosen for us, and we will love her and her only in that way. That's what we will commit to do. And then this is the way we will do it. We will do it faithfully and kindly and lovingly. And then thirdly, we will not give that love which belongs to her to anyone else. That's our promise. And so nothing has changed. And nothing has changed in regard to those things. It's also true that you can assure yourself that nothing has changed in regards to the results of violating those covenant terms. In other words, the results are similar. If we are not doing what we covenanted to do for that woman, and she is in tears before the Lord because she's not being loved and cared for and served in the way that we promised to do, and we are offering our own prayers, the sound of the guilt is louder than the sound of the prayer. And the consequences will be the same. And sometimes the same question is asked. Why isn't the Lord blessing us? Well, you're in disobedience. You've broken covenant. You've broken covenant with your spouse. You've broken covenant with God. Now you notice what the Israelites say here. What's the problem? They're doing all this. And their question is, what's the problem? We don't get it. Yes, we've been... We've broken covenant with you. We've broken covenant with the wives of our youth. And we haven't been faithful to them. And we're praying and you're not hearing us. What's the problem here? They were disregarding and they were making a mockery of God and his word by their behavior. They were shaming their wives and they were disgracing themselves. And their question is, what's the problem? We don't get it. They still didn't understand. And so, without the slightest hesitation, the Lord answers. What's the problem? This is the problem. Verse 14. You say, why does he not? Why is this happening? And my answer is, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The first thing we learn here, I think, is that we should always beware of calling Jehovah as a witness. If you don't intend to do what you promise to do, don't call God as a witness. You see how carefully vows should be made? If you call God as a witness, 
don't have any doubts about the fact that he will prove the most thorough, accurate, and faithful witness you will ever encounter. You call him to witness, and he will hold you to what you have vowed to do. In Proverbs 15.3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. Men, women, and children are notoriously unreliable witnesses, even when they don't mean to be. People who are trained to be witnesses sometimes go through exercises to help them become more observant. And on occasion, that first, the very first exercise in teaching you to be more observant is an opportunity to witness an unexpected event and then report on it. And then after you report on it, the leader collects all the reports and shows the difference. And uh, I've been through this myself on occasion, and uh, it's amazing. Some person will say, oh, the man had on a red shirt. And another person will say, no, no, it was a blue hoodie. And then another will say, no, no, it was black. And somebody else said, well, I think it was green. He had a mustache. No, he was bald. And they go through and all different reports like that. And it's because that's the way we see things. We're, we're affected by time and circumstance and, and the things that are impacting us. The eye of the Lord, beloved, misses nothing. He forgets nothing. He sees it all for what it really is. And he reports everything. And for Israel at this time and under these circumstances, he proves a crushing witness. When they say, why? What's, what's the problem here? He tells them exactly what the problem is and clearly tells them what it is. He witnesses between them and their wives, and the issue is clear. They had been faithless in their covenant promises. That is, they had hollowed out and emptied all of their promises until there was nothing. Matthew Henry believes it's put in this way because the Jewish men were putting on a pretense of an act that suggested faithfulness to their wives. But the Lord was a witness against those lies. That outwardly, they were pretending that they had been faithful and they had been careful and they were treating their wives properly. And in public, that's the face they were giving. But this is what was going on in private. And the Lord knew what was going on in private and exposed their lies. And look at the way the Lord describes these wives here. They were um, women who deserved their faithfulness. They were the wives of their youth. They were their companions and their wives by covenant. They were, first of all, he says here, the choice of their youth when they were in full strength and their desire was at its strongest. When they were in that state, when they were in the, the full strength of who they were, and when their natural desires were the strongest, they looked at these women that God approved of and they said, yes, this is the one. She's beautiful to me. I love her. I'm going to make my commitment to her in the strength and vitality of their youth. And now... They've abandoned those women to take on others. 
They were the wives of their youth when things were simpler in regards to ambitions and in regards to expectations. There wasn't any need to impress anybody then. When they were young and picking out a wife, they weren't thinking, you know, where's the woman I can find that will make the biggest impression on the people I want to be popular with or I want to impress? That's not it usually, is it? The thing is, this is the woman I love. This is the woman I want. This is the woman I want to be with. But as time matures, those perspectives change. And that's what was happening here. They were looking for the opportunity to secure positions of importance and to increase their riches. And so it was changing the way they were looking at their wives. And they were saying these Jewish wives, they're, they're, they're older, they're worn out from our time of uh, um, captivity, they're worn out from the journeys back and forth, and over here are some young, vital, pagan women. And I'm going to turn to them for what I hope to be my future. There's something very touching in these illusions to the aggravation of this wrong, says T.V. Moore, arising from the tender associations and the memories of youth. And the Lord presses it here. These are the women you wanted when you were young and vital, and now you're rejecting them. They were your companions. This is interesting because this is the only place companions appears in the Bible in quite this form. But the root word in Hebrew is used to identify things joined together and includes everything from the curtains of the tabernacle being joined together to blocks of stone in the walls of Jerusalem to alliances in war. And what a beautiful picture arises from the Lord's use of this word when referring to couples being joined together in marriage. You're like curtains woven together. You're like blocks of stone in a wall fitted together. You're like an ally in war. And that's the relationship that you're supposed to have. And you have rejected them. And then thirdly, they are your covenant wives. And this too deserves further study. Perhaps in a marriage seminar soon we can take that up. But notice that the Lord specifically recognizes the covenant nature of their relationship. And he viewed it as a part of the covenant with him as well as with the women. Now, the spirit of this truth is behind the words of Peter. Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You are heirs together of the grace of life. You're like that curtain woven together. You're like that wall built together. You're like those allies in battle. And you are heirs together of the grace of life. And you need to concentrate on that and develop that so that your prayers will not be hindered. 
Because if your wife comes weeping before the Lord because she's not being treated as the covenanted companion she is to be, the Lord will deal with that within the context of the family. I agree wholeheartedly with Richard Stock when he says the husbands ought not to do that which will grieve and vex his wife and make her unfit for duties to himself and service to God. And then look quickly at what he says next. Malachi 2.15 And did he not make one, although he had the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore one? He sought a godly seed. Therefore take heed to yourselves, to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. And I'm reading from the American Standard Version there because I think it's a little better one. Um, the ESV has pulled away from uh, the traditional translation and worked out a new one in the Hebrew. And it's kind of unique and no one else follows it but the ESV. But notice what he says here. There's one creator. And what he's restating here is what he said in verse 10. Have we not one father? Has not one God created us? And he's restating that in this context. And he's saying that you are profaning the covenant between one another. And it's interesting to see how many commentators make the point here in this context. And maybe you've never thought of it before, but it's good to do so. That the Lord could have made a dozen wives for Adam. He could have made two dozen wives for Adam. He could have made a hundred wives for Adam if that was his intent. He had, as you read here, the residue of the spirit. Or that is, he wasn't limited because there was only one that he could use. It wasn't as though he had a soul for Adam and a soul for Eve and none others. So he had to give just one. He could have given numberless wives to Adam. But he made just one with purpose. And that's the point here. God had the residue of the spirit. He could have made another Eve, as amiable as that he did make. But designing Adam a help meet for him, he made him one wife. Had he made him more, he would not have had a meet help, says Matthew Henry. And what Matthew Henry is saying here is that if God desired to make one the helpmate Adam needed, to make more than one would have defeated the design. To what purpose would the others have been? If I give you something and I say, this is all you need, and then I come along a few minutes later and say, but here's a few more just in case. What happens to that initial statement? Well, maybe it's all you need, but maybe not. Maybe you need something more. And so the Lord is making it clear that, Adam, what you need is Eve, period. That's all you need. She is all the help you need. She will be to you all you need a wife to be. And that's it. You don't need any more or any others. Now, while all of that's true, 
I think it misses the original connection here. The connection here with the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation was fathered by God. He called them out. It was he who chose Jacob to love and to build through him a godly seed. The Lord could have blessed many nations spiritually, and they might have served him as well. And eventually, of course, the gospel will be open to many nations. But at this point still, in the days of Malachi, he chose this people to be a godly seed for himself to be an example of his grace and mercy, to have the covenants and promises of the Lord and to see those covenants and promises flourish and then through that to be a witness to the rest of the world. Why then did he choose but one? It was that he might make a seed of God, a nation which he should train to be the repository of his covenant and the stock of his Messiah a people in which the true doctrine of the unity of God should be cherished amid surrounding polytheism and idolatry until the fullness of time should come, says T.V. Moore. It was this very design that the Jews, the Jewish men, were undermining by divorcing and rejecting their Jewish wives and linking up with the Gentile women of pagan background. That would do nothing but dilute the race and link them with women who would draw, them, draw both them and their children away from the one true and living God. And these people, beloved, had the most sterling example of this before them as the people of God. The dangers raised by these things were well known to them. Who was the wisest of them? Who was the wisest of them all? Solomon. There we go. Solomon. Thank you, Lynn. Now we come to 1 Kings 11, 1, and what do we read? Now King Solomon, the wisest of them all, loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. That's their history. The wisest of them did what they're doing now and was turned away by those women who were not in covenant with God, turned by those women away from God. He was led into the sinful worship of other gods. And that's a sterling example before them. And they're ignoring it and indulging in this and hoping that for them, they'll have a better result. 
So the Lord says through the prophet here in verses 15 and 16, Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. When he says guard yourself, that is set, as it were, a hedge of thorns around your spirit so that no temptation like this can break through and hound you and so that your spirit cannot break out and go straying after these other women. Set a guard around your spirit, a hedge of thorns. The Christian church is still such a people, and although its relations to the world are very different from those of the Jewish people, this law of mutual obligation is still in force. The church is one family and is bound to act thus in all the dealings of its members with each other, says T.V. Moore. Now we have to close. But remember the overarching point here, beloved. The believer cannot willfully do his or her own pleasure, despite what God says and commands, without, first of all, profaning his holiness. You can't do it. You profane his holiness when you promise one thing in his name and you acknowledge to obey him and then you do something else. It makes him, in the eyes of others, look like every other false god. It confirms the lost in their unbelief. They say, well, why should we pay attention to that God? He's no different than any other God that people are hounding us to believe and to follow. It jeopardizes future generations. The child looks at his father or his mother and sees either one of them being unfaithful in what they've promised, especially to one another. Why should they? Make any kind of commitment to the Lord. Why should they feel any kind of compulsion to follow the Lord? After all, here are my parents. They're in the most intimate relationship possible on earth. They've made promises before God to each other. And now they're treating each other contrary to those promises. And they're doing it as though there aren't going to be any consequences and it's fine to do. So why should I make a commitment? Why should I be bound or feel bound some way to a God who who my parents view this way? And it will trouble you. It will trouble you. You cannot escape the trouble that follows. But you know, when we think about this in the overarching scheme, let's take it out of the context of marriage and just Consider it in the whole relationship that we have with God. Have we not done such things? Are there not sins of omission and commission that we can all confess? It's for that reason that we must have Christ. And that's why Christ is before us. Our behavior will never be fit to justify us. It never will. 
Even in little things, when we're living together as husband and wife, we can find times when we are not doing what we've committed to do, and we're not doing it in the way we committed to do it. It might be because of pressure. It might be because of time. It might be other things that are entering into the relationship. But we fail, and we come short. What are we to do about that? Well, we're to come first of all, to them and repent, and then we're to find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins is the work of Christ alone in his death for our sins. That's the only thing that can bring us justification. This table sits before us as the testimony of that need being met by the grace and the goodness of God. If you're trying to bear the guilt of your sins yourself this morning, please understand that you can only, that can only end in one sad and sorrowful way. The way of Christ is the way of redemption and the way of forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes in verse 7, In him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. No, we don't seek to conform to the word of God to be perfect and somehow find through that perfection peace with God. We seek by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to conform to his word to demonstrate that in Christ we have found peace with God. And we seek to do it out of a desire to match his love towards us and to show the character of that love in response in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. You know, people enjoy renewing their marriage vows from time to time. And I would tell you, beloved, those of you who are married, right here at this table, is a good time to do it. Right here and now. To do it in your heart before your God. And if you do, it will manifest itself in the eyes of your spouse. We offer in closing the prayer of Paul. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I lift up before you the young boys and girls who are here with us today. Someday they will be looking for spouses. And I pray, Lord, that as those who have covenanted with you in faith, they will look to be obedient to your word and seek out from among those who have others who have covenanted with you, husbands and wives. I pray, Father, that you will strengthen the young men and boys to love and reverence and take care of their mothers, that they might be a good example of faith and trust in you, and show themselves to be worthy of a good Christian wife. 
I pray, Father, and lift up before you all who are married and pray, Lord, that you would grant us to be faithful to our vows, to forgive us where we have come short, even in those brief moments of failure. Lord, please forgive us and grant us that forgiveness that belongs to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, make us of a loving spirit towards one another, ready to forgive one another, even as Christ has forgiven us. And Lord, help us to live together as those companions that you have described in your word, knitted together like a curtain, built together like a wall, allies together in the work of the kingdom, in our homes, and all around and about us. Father, those who are looking and searching for the spouse you may have for them, we pray, Lord, that you would put in their way those that you have chosen for them. And Lord, where that's not the case, that you would give grace and strength and show mercy. Father, we thank you for the love you have for us. We are not, Lord, uh, reliable people in and of ourselves. But Lord, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Lord, make us what you call us to be through your word and by your spirit working in us for the glory of your name both now and forever. Amen.